So tonight I, I've titled this message, and I'll be honest, this is probably one of my, I don't want to say least favorite, but one of the most difficult components for me is actually titling messages. For those of you that know and those of you that don't know that are going to know, I, I've, I came to this church from a Bible college background, and tonight's message would have been Joshua 10. Coming up with titles isn't always an easy thing because I don't want to make it cheeky, I don't want to make it cliche, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but tonight was pretty easy. Tonight, the title is, When the Natural and the Supernatural Collide. We are going to literally see the collision of the natural and the supernatural worlds. Chapter 10 is an amazing chapter, and within it, we, in my opinion, we find probably one of the greatest miracles in Scripture, apart from the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a chapter that is both literal and historical. There are components to this chapter that you can find in the, re in the recorded histories of other groups throughout the world. But it is also a chapter that is filled with types. Now, what is a type? It's a picture. A type points us to something else. It is an example that then describes or that points us into a new or a different truth. So there are going to be many, many types throughout this chapter. You don't need to turn there, but over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read an outline of the journey of the children of Israel through the promised land. And it tells us over there in 1 Corinthians 10 that those things are there for us in type, that they're there for us in picture. They're there for us to learn from. This chapter is basically, it's going to be the battle, it's going to be the introduction to the battle of the heartland of Canaan. We're going to see as, as, the, as Joshua and the nation kind of comes into the, the middle of the promised land, the middle of Canaan, they're going to begin their campaign of fighting for the, the, the southern half and then the northern portion. And this is the beginning of all of that. So tonight, we're not going to get through the whole chapter. We're just going to do the first 15 verses. So not too bad comparison. So verse 1. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai... And totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king. And that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and had become their allies. Now, so to speak, as we come to this chapter, we are coming to the battle for Jerusalem. This is the first time in scripture that Jerusalem is mentioned. Before this, it was actually Jebus is what it was known as. But this is the first time that it's mentioned as Jerusalem. There's some significance to that that we will get to shortly. But also in this chapter, we have this character named Adonai Zedek. And his name means the Lord, lowercase l, the Lord of righteousness. We read at the very beginning some misinformation. Right off the bat, what Adonai Zedek heard is actually wrong. Joshua did nothing to the king of Ai. Joshua did nothing to the, kings of, to the king of Jericho. It's what the Lord did through him. And so at the very beginning, we're going to actually see that there needs to be an, a, a distinction between what man is doing and, and what God is doing. God's role and man's role. We're going to see that all throughout this chapter. We're going to see that God has a part in, in what's happening and man has a part in what's happening. We're going to talk about that concept a little bit later, but we need to understand at the very beginning that Joshua did not, under his own strength, take Jericho and Ai, but it was the Lord. 
Now, as much as that might be a kind of a no-duh or a obvious statement, we need to understand, we need to clearly define and distinguish what we are doing in our lives and what the Lord is doing in our lives. And if it's something that he has done, we should not touch it. We should not take credit or the glory from it. It's only his. So verse 2 says that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. The king, Adonai Zedek, and all of his people, they were very much alarmed at what was going on. Gibeon was a very important city. Like it says, it was one of the royal cities. It was much larger than Ai, and its fighters, its men of war, were much stronger and better and actually more numerous than that of Ai. And so the, the, the king here, Adonai Zedek, is hearing what's going on. And his, his fear and his anxiety and his concern is continuing to rise as he's seeing what's happening before him in, in, the, in the land of Canaan, and he thinks... Something's got to change here. Something's got to stop this. Gibeon had a reputation as being a stronghold. Not only a stronghold as a fortified city, but it was an epicenter of great warriors. And actually, it was, it was said that if you could take Gibeon, you could take any city within Canaan. That's how well-known and renowned the fighters and the warriors were within Gibeon. And think about all that Adonai Zedek had to have heard starting with the parting of the Red Sea. That's not something that was going to stay quiet or stay local or centralized. That these millions of people walked across the Jordan River at flood stage at a quarter mile wide on dry ground. Next, that through marching and shouting and the blowing of the trumpets, that the walls of Jericho came down. The ambushing and the, the, the taking of the city of Ai, he's hearing the reports of all of these things and he's, he has to do something about it. And lastly, even with Gibeon, what did Gibeon do? We talked about it last time I was here. They made a treaty with Israel. They signed a contract that they wouldn't fight them. And if a piece of paper could bring down Gibeon, what could the full army do to Jerusalem? Verses 3 and 4. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, appealed to Hohem, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and Debir, king of Eglon. And he said to them, come up and help me attack Gibeon, because it had made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. Now, historically and literally, these kings, they would come together, they would represent the heartland, the backbone of the promised land running through Canaan. And they want to go take Gideon. They want to make an, an example of it since they made peace with Israel. They want to destroy it. They want to convince the rest of the strongholds within the promised land not to defect, not to break faith in a sense, not to side with the Israelites and to make peace with them. Now, militarily, this also makes a lot of sense. Adonai Zedek and these other kings coming together. Now, I want to stop first because remember, there's a lot of types involved in this chapter. And for us, the picture here is that when, for you and me, for, that when anything comes under the subjection to the true Joshua, to Jesus, to Jehovah, there's going to be warfare. Anytime. There is no spiritual progress without warfare. There isn't. 
The enemy doesn't like, Satan doesn't like what we do. Even us being here together, you at home, you on your phone, you wherever you are, you are taking time out of your life to sit under the teaching of the word of God, to invest yourself into what the Lord wants to do through this and in this and with this. You're denying other things that this world has to offer and you are preferring spiritual things and you're preferring the Lord. Satan doesn't like this. He doesn't. Now, there is so much talk in the New Testament, especially of spiritual attacks, of warfare, of armor, of weapons of warfare, yet we always seem to be shocked anytime there's resistance to what is going on. It's just a reality. It's a reality that anytime we see spiritual progress in our life, that something is going to come against it to try to quell it, to try to stop it, to try to reduce it. And as Joshua is taking his people, these Israelites, these children of God, and they are claiming their inheritance, they are claiming the promise that God has for them, the enemies are going to want to try to stop it. And today, for us, there are spiritual forces that love it when we are dulled, when we are, in a sense, muted to our senses, spiritual and practical and physical. Because when we are tuned in to the Lord, when we spend time in his word, when we take time to pray, when we remove ourselves from the stimulus of this world, then we become sharpened to another stimulus that is based on the vertical and not the horizontal. The world wants us to look out around us with our, with our physical eyes and be distracted by all that it can offer. When the Lord just wants us to have that vertical relationship as our priority, focusing on him, being made sharp by him, and when that happens, when we learn to hear his voice, when we understand his presence, when we become a little bit more wiser and aware about what warfare is and warfare is not, we can live a life that is more not only peaceable, but is more in tune to him. The more real he is to us, the more real his presence is to us, and the more real his voice is to us, the more we become aware and we recognize the warfare and the different spiritual things going on around us. You know, I, I, there are things and there are times where, guess what, what you're experiencing isn't always spiritual warfare. Sometimes there are just natural occurrences, and that discernment is going to help us to understand if it's spiritual or if it's just practical. Now, if you roll over, if you're driving your car and you, you drive over a box of nails and you get a flat tire, is that warfare? Could be. Your discernment will tell you. Or it could just be a practical nuisance of driving over nails. Doesn't necessarily mean that it's always warfare. But the more you spend time with the Lord, the more you invest yourself with him, the more you focus on that relationship, the more aware you're going to be of what is warfare, what is not, what is spiritual and what is physical and practical. So here we have these kings that have gathered together under Adonai Zedek. And it's actually the first place in the book of Joshua that any of the kings are named. You can look back. Go look back at Jer Jericho. Go look back at Ai. The kings are actually not, we are not given their names. This is the first time that we are given their names. And so there's something here that is of significance that we need to pay attention to. So I want to understand what their names are and what their names mean so that we can understand what's going on behind the scene from just our English words. So first, like we started with, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. And Adonai Zedek means the Lord of righteousness. Now, Jerusalem, it means the place or the city of peace. 
So you have the king of righteousness ruling over the city of peace. Sounds like a great comparison or correlation to someone else we know, right? But we know there's only one true king of Jerusalem, and that's Jesus Christ himself. He's the only one that is Lord over it. So we have an imposter here. We have a picture of self-righteousness. We can have a false sense uh, or a false place of peace because we have a false sense of righteousness. Self-righteousness is a blindness to the depravity of our own lives. It's, it's a blindness to how sinful we really are and to the powerful grace that God extends to us. It's a blindness to those things. He is glorified when we realize what we are really made of and the price has been paid on the cross in Jerusalem at Golgotha and we love him because he first loved us. That is when he is glorified. That is when his righteousness becomes revealed. But we have this Adonai Zedek, this man that obviously is a hater of God's people because he wants to make war against them. And Jerusalem at this point is, not long, is no longer a city of peace. It's going to become a city of war. Now, Jebus, what it was known before this in the Bible, it actually means the, the threshing floor or a hard place, a hardened road. And I look at all these, these pictures and I go, okay, it's, it's going from a, a, a hardness to a false city of peace. And it will never be what it's supposed to be until the true king is reigning over it. So we have Adonai Zedek, the false king of righteousness, lord of righteousness, reigning over the, the city of peace. Then we hear of Hoham, king of Hebron. Now, Hoham has the idea to crush or to destroy is what Hoham means. In Hebron, it's a little bit easier to understand. It, it's actually, it means an alliance or fellowship to have communion. And there's a, a, an amazing picture here that when aligned under Adonai Zedek, when aligned under self-righteousness, any real communion or any real fellowship that we may have is crushed and destroyed. Pyram, the root of it speaks of a wild donkey. It means to run wild. It's the kind of it's a, a kind of animal in Israel that was actually held in some high regard for its incredible adaptability to survive in the desert where nothing else was around. It was tough. It was a survivor, but you couldn't break it. You couldn't domesticate it. It was worthless to the people. And he was the king of Jarmuth. Jarmuth means to be haughty, to be self-exalted, to be lifted up. When we are self-righteous, we definitely run wild sometimes, don't we? When we think we know ourselves so well, when we think we're okay, when we think we're, we're doing good in life, sometimes, man, that leash gets let out and we just start running. And we don't understand how far we've run until either that, you know, that I think of a, a dog on one of those long leashes that it's just out there having a great time and it's running after something and it doesn't know that it's run too far until that leash snaps its head back. And it's like, oh, I've gone too far. I got to come back. We are haughty. We're self-exalting. And here is this wild king of self-exalting haughtiness. So far, this group of kings, not a great picture. Not a great group 
that I would like to be named amongst. Then we have Jephiah. Jephiah means to shine or to show off. He's just a big show off. And he's the king of Lachish, which means impregnable. And when someone is puffed up with pride, when someone is wanting to shine themselves off, they are impregnable. If they are self-righteous and they have that attitude, you can't really get to them. You can't reason with them. They think they are spiritual. They speak spiritual things. They act spiritual, but they are haughty and they are lifting themselves up. Now, all these kings, all these pictures, all these issues, they're showing us conditions and pictures of the heart. It's as if the, if these things are conquered, the land falls to the control of the true Joshua, Jehovah, the true and living God. These are all issues of the heart. The last king is Debir, king of Eglon. And Debir, it has the idea of an oracle or of, of one who declares or speaks truths. And Eglon, it, it kind of has two different meanings and depending on, on the, the, the context and depending on what's going on, it either means to be fat, to be rounded and fat, or it means to be jumping in circles. And it's a picture of someone who is always talking, who is always spouting off so-called spiritual truths, and won't stop jumping around demanding an audience and wanting to basically hear himself speak. Now, a real quick kind of detour from that, I look at Debir, king of, of, of Eglon, and it makes me automatically think of Naphtali, one of the tribes, one of the sons. And in Genesis 49, when all the sons are receiving their blessing, Naphtali had an interesting one. Naphtali, his blessing was, you will give good words. And I, I, as I, you know, this is, it's another study, but I, I like the correlation here between Debir, king of Eglon, and, and Naphtali. Naphtali, we'll learn actually later in this, in this book, in this study, as we get into the end of Joshua, as the tribe settled in the promised land, Naphtali settled on what, is, what would be the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. In the area that Naphtali settled in and became their home in their homeland, it became where Jesus Christ did 80% of his public ministry. And so I think of this Debir, this king of Eglon, who by the meaning of his name is one that wants to attract attention, is, is, is demanding an audience, speaking his own spiritual truths, listening to himself. And then you have on this other side of the spectrum, this area, this, this, this tribe of Israel, Naphtali, whose blessing is that they will speak good words, and they become kind of the central location of the verbal ministry of Jesus Christ, who we know, when you study the life of Christ, is not one that is bouncing around demanding an audience, spouting off his own form of spiritual wisdom just so that people can pay attention to him. He was one that spoke the true spiritual truths and never pointed people to himself, but always pointed people to the Father. And I really think that's a very interesting dynamic here as we look at these kings. Again, the only place in the book of Joshua where the kings are named. It is in regard to the issues of the heart, or in Joshua's case, the physical heartland of Canaan, as it were. 
It is in regards to an imposter king of Jerusalem, a false king of righteousness. And this whole issue is placed before us both historically, literally, and in, in picture and in type. Yes, they are historical figures. Yes, this is a literal gathering of these kings, and this will be a literal war that happens, a historical war that happens. But the picture here of these kings, all of their names, all the meanings of their names, because again, we read, their, we read you know, Debir, we read Jephiah, we, we read Piram, we read all that, but go back into cultural and historical Jewish societies, and you would understand the meaning of the name, not just the written name, and you would understand that the, these, this group of these five kings, they're reflecting and revealing all issues of the heart. It is something for us to look at, to deal with, to take personal inventory over. We are to guard our heart with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. And now most of the time, I'll say most because not always, our our outward sin is both evident to ourselves and those around us. And I say most because sometimes we can be naive and not understand that what we're doing on the outside is actually sin. We could be naive, and then we, we become aware, and then we become responsible. But the things of the heart are the things that go on, and they're not on the radar. We usually just live and exist, and we're not cognizant of what's going on. Sometimes we think things or we have things that go on in our hearts, and we are told to bring every thought into captivity. <clears throat> Sometimes we allow thoughts to happen, thoughts to take up residence in our mind, and then they move into our heart. And those things, we're supposed to take them captive, to bind them up, and to remove them, and we just allow them to exist. We allow things to live in our hearts that we are called to put away from ourselves. Things that should not be allowed to live as new creations in Christ. You know, the outward, uh, outward sins, you know, things like fighting or drunkenness, drugs, pornography, those things, yes, we all can agree that we are to put to death. They are observable. We know they are wrong. And let's be honest, sometimes the external pressures of life and society help us with that. Let's just be honest. You commit your life to Christ and then you're out having an argument with your wife and you're screaming out of your house at your wife and you're, and you're, you're, you're drunk walking around your, your yard and someone from church walks by automatically. That's going to snap you into a reality of, ooh, I shouldn't be doing this maybe if you care. But sometimes there's outward pressures that, that kind of force us to be more realizing of those sins. But as time goes on, the Lord is continually working on us regarding our intents. What is kind of the reason behind what we're doing? The why behind the what? Our thoughts, our pride, our bitterness, they're all issues of the heart. And it isn't until he has taken, taken and conquered the heart that he is Lord of all. Now, as a little picture or a little example I like to use, so when we think of the word Lord, and I'll say lowercase l, you know, what, usually what I think of that word, I think of, you know, go back to the, to the medieval times, you know, the Lord of the land, the Lord of the castle. And really, rudimentally, when you, when you look at it, Lord means overall. So if I'm the, the Lord of my house, I'm over all my house. You know, if I'm the Lord of Dover, I'm over all of Dover here. 
So if Lord means overall, simplistic breakdown of the definition, if it means overall, that means every area of our life should be under it, should be under the, under the Lord, yes? So now let's go to spiritualizing that. Not even spiritualizing it. Let's just go to the truth behind it. If we call Jesus Lord, and we understand that that means that he's over all, that means there's no area of our life that he should not be in control of. And usually when I have this example, I have a big old wad of keys. And it's like, all right, you know, all these keys, this represents my life. And if he's Lord of all, then I give him everything and he's over it all. But usually we like to kind of, you know, I, I would tuck one of those keys under my hand. And I would like to hold on to one of those two areas that, all right, Lord, you can have everything except those couple areas. Just let, let me take care of them. I'll, I'll, I'll handle those. Well, if he's not Lord of all, then the question is, is he Lord at all? Because Lord means over everything, means over all. So if he's over part of your life, is he really the Lord of your life? If he only conquered, if, if, if only a few of these kings were conquered, and not all of them, can Joshua say that he was, that he, that he was over, in a sense, the, the lowercase Lord of the promised land? It's kind of an all or nothing deal here. We want him to be our savior because, we, let's be honest, we want the fire insurance. We want, him to be the, 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 we want him to be the man that died on the cross that, that is going to save me from the fires of hell. Why? Because we want a savior or because we don't, want to, we don't want to go to hell? Honest question. But what about when he is making us and working on us and pulling out our pride, our bitterness, our unforgiveness? Do you want him to be Lord of those areas? That means you've got to give them to him and he's got to be over it. What about when he's telling us to give him our entire heart? Give me all that you are and let me be over it. He knows our desires. He knows our longings. But God is asking us to place all of those things in his hand and give him everything. We're going to see, spoiler alert, Joshua conquers these five kings. He's going to be able to conquer. There's really going to be nothing stopping him from conquering the rest of Canaan. He's got to conquer the heart first. And once he conquers the heart, it's pretty easy. We're going to see that in weeks to come as I come, I'm able to come back. Verses 5 and 6. Then the five kings of the Amorites, kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces. They moved up with all their troops and took up positions against Gibeon and attacked it. The Gibeonites then sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. Help us because all the Amorite kings from the hill country have joined forces against us. Now, quick note, Gilgal is going to be mentioned five times in this chapter, and there's going to be significance to it as everything with this chapter. So just remember Gilgal. We'll get back to that. But also remember how the children of Israel went to war against Ai the first time. They didn't seek the Lord. They didn't pray about it. They didn't send the whole army. They only sent a few thousand men, and they were defeated. 36 Israelites were killed in that battle, and those 36 Israelites, they were the only military casualties in the entire book of Joshua. There has to be repentance. There has to be bringing those things back to God and repenting for not praying and going up in their own strength 
keeping sin in the camp with Achan. And then the next time they go to Ai, they go under the direction of the Lord with the whole army, breaking off into smaller forces and setting up an ambush for the city of Ai. And God uses their failure to grant them victory. As he will often use the failures in our lives to do something so that in the future, as we become stronger in him, we recognize more clearly our mistakes and we don't fall into the same pit again. How many of you have ever experienced victory in your life over something? Like, all right, Lord, I used to struggle with this. And Lord, by your grace, by your power, by your mercy, I'm not struggling with it anymore. It's been conquered. It's been defeated. And as we get stronger and stronger and stronger in him, those victories begin to pile up quickly as we are given over to our true Lord, our true Joshua. And remember, the Gibeonites, they made a sacred covenant, a holy covenant with the Israelites. And the Gibeonites, they were the people in the land that Israel was called to destroy. But once again, they didn't seek the Lord, so they didn't destroy them. Now, we're going to see here, God is going to use the failure of the Gibeonites to bring about a great victory in Israel. Remember the Gibeonites, they were, made the, they were made to be the water carriers and the cutters of wood. They were made to be the servants in the temple, at the tabernacle. They are now in subjugation to Joshua and Israel. And so they're saying, listen, we're your servants. You've got to help us now. So, verse 7, Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best fighting men. That would be like the infantry and the special forces. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. At the beginning of that, Gilgal is mentioned once again. And here we have what is called the prophetic past tense. We've run into this a few times already in this book. Have, key word in, this, in, in, in these two verses. I have given them into your hand. It was already done, same thing at Jericho. It's already done at the crossing of the Jordan River. It's the prophetic past tense. It's done. It's already over. But Joshua has to act on it, just like we do. Verse 9, after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise. Third time Gilgal is mentioned. So they're going from Gilgal to Jerusalem. You look at the maps in the back of your Bible or go online and look at it. It doesn't look that bad. Well, it is a 12-hour march. 12 hours. Start at 6 p.m. and you won't stop till 6 a.m. It's a 12-hour march. Gilgal up to the area of Gibeon is about 25 miles. So 12-hour march, 25 miles, still doesn't seem horrible. It's doable, just a long day. Oh, but the elevation change. It's a 4,000 different elevation change. They're going to be going from 2,000 feet below sea level to 2,000 feet above sea level. It's an uphill climb the entire way. Climbing uphill, 25 miles, 12 hours. It is a very unique situation. The Lord has already given them the victory. He said flat out in verse 8, I have given them into your hand. It's done. But now they have to march it out. They have to walk it out. 
They have to go uphill all the way, 25 miles from the camp. And guess what? When they get there, when the battle starts, we're going to actually learn. This is going to be the big point of it all, the, the natural miracle. God is going to extend the day so they can fight even longer. So what do we have here? We have this tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And we see this tension all throughout Scripture. God is going to give the greatest victory in the natural that we read about in the Scriptures. We'll get to it, but I truly believe that this story is one of the greatest natural miracles that happens in the Bible. The solar system is going to be affected. Not just the earth, not just the parting of an ocean, but the cosmos are going to be affected in this chapter. They're going to go all night without sleep. Then they're going to go all day in battle. And then God is going to extend the day so they can fight almost another whole day without any sleep. Sometimes we think that if the Lord has blessed us and has given to us the things that he has promised, why is life so difficult at times? Why are we so exhausted? Why are we so wearisome by the things that he has given to us by grace? Well, there is something in all of this that he wants our participation with. We are co-laborers with Christ, as the Bible tells us. We are yoked together with him, and there is a privilege to it. We are going to be in a battle whether or not we like it as Christians. And if we are going to face difficulties anyway, let's do it where the sun stands still in the Valley of Agilon. Let's do it where we see the supernatural hand of God in the process of our natural lives. If we are going to see difficulties, let's do it next to Jesus. Let's do it walking with him so we can see his power, so we can see his majesty, so we can see his love. The way Joshua came upon the enemy suddenly is that they did not expect him to make this climb all through the night. I'm sure they felt safe. This steep hill that would last for 12 hours of climbing, of hiking. No army's going to come up that. We don't need to worry about it. But yet, after 12 hours, after 25 miles, after a 4,000 4, foot change in elevation, they surprised the enemy and the Lord confused them. Verse 10 the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely at Gibeon. Israel pursued them along the road going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to Azekah and Makedah. Once again, beautiful picture here. I love the imagery and the type that we're going to find in this section, in this one verse. The Lord is going to chase them using Joshua and the army down to Beth Horon. Okay? It's about an 800 foot, 1,000 foot drop in elevation from Gibeon down. So it's a downhill climb, it's a downhill run. So imagine the Israeli army marching all night, and now they are fighting, and they drive the enemy down to Beth Horon. Beth Horon means house of wrath. So they're driving them towards the house of wrath. And it says that they cut them all the way, I'll cut them down all the way to Azekah. Azekah means to fence in. And to Makedah, Makedah means to herd. So we, we have this wonderful, beautiful linguistic picture of the Lord fencing them in and herding them into the house of wrath. 
There's so much beauty here as the children of Israel and Joshua are pursuing the enemy. Again, we just look at that verse and say, oh, they re- they're running them, they're chasing them towards Beth Horon, and they chase them, you know, they cut them down to Asaka and Makeda. There's so much more to that. Again, we're just looking at words. What's behind the words? What's the why behind the what? And we see the Lord is hurting them and is fencing them in to their own destruction. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail than were killed by the sword of the Israelites. So this slope down from Gibeon to Beth Horon, it's a terrace plateau. So it has a, a slope that goes down in a way, then it terraces and it plateaus out, then it goes down and then it terraces out and then it goes down. And as the enemy gets in front of Israel, as they're running down this hill, God sends these great stones. And these stones only hit the bad guys. There's a lot of, of scientists and there's a lot of people out there that want to say, oh, it's, a, it's, it's just an earthquake or it was just something else. Last time I checked, stones hurling from the sky that have no prejudice on who they hit, it's not a natural occurrence. These stones are only hitting the enemy. There's a supernatural impact to the natural world here. Imagine the children of Israel coming across this ridge, hiking up this hill and coming across the ridge, and then dropping down to Beth Horon with a series of terraces. And as they are looking down and these stones, these hailstones start coming out of heaven, and they're watching their enemy get flattened in front of them. More are being slaughtered by the hand of God than by the hand of the Israelites. God showed up to fight. They may have complained all night about the uphill battle, about the uphill walk, but if they knew what they were going to see on top of that hill, man, none of them would have complained. Same is for you and me. This life that we are living is an uphill walk. We all have an inheritance in Christ that is incorruptible, that is undefiled and does not fade away. And I can promise you one thing, friend. The first time you look upon the Lamb of God and you see the marks of slaughter upon him, none of you will complain about anything that you did for him, anything you gave to him, anything that you yielded to him, and any time that we turned the other cheek and we went the extra mile. None of us are going to complain. There won't be a single complaint when our eyes see the hand of God when we come across that ridge. And we have seen what he does. Not a single regret. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 12 and 14. 12 through 14. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to the Lord in the presence of Israel, Joshua spoke this. Sun, stand still over Gibeon, and you, moon, over the valley of Ajalon. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jasher. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down for about a full day. Verse 14, my favorite verse. 
There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. I love that verse. We could read that over and over and over again. Now, real quick, I'll just touch on it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. The book of Jasher. The book of Jasher is a book of songs. Okay, It's not part of the biblical canon, but it's a book of songs that was present then. And it mentions this event. Okay, So that's all. It's just a, it's a book of songs. There's a number of other books that were part of the, 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 the nation of Israel that aren't part of our, our scripture, our Bible. It's okay. But what do the prayers of one individual that is animated, that is moved by faith, genuine faith, mean to God? Think about this. Joshua, this man, is crying out and is demanding, commanding the sun and the moon to stand still. Understand something real quick. that For the Canaanites, all these kings and all these people that they're fighting, the sun and the moon, they were principal deities. They prayed to them. They looked at them. And I love, again, imagery. On this day, the sun and the moon, they were no longer serving the Canaanites and the Amorites. They were serving the children of Israel. Humanistically here, what was Joshua thinking? It's not like Joshua had the book like we do. It's not like he could be like, guys, wait, wait till what you read in chapter 10. It's going to be awesome. He spoke out of a genuine, confident faith in his God. Think of what the rest of his men were, were, would think about him. It says that he spoke it so that all could hear. It said it was in the presence of Israel. They must be thinking, man, that long march, this long day is finally getting to him. He's finally starting to crack. Now, we have this event, this miraculous event of the sun standing still and the moon standing still. Scientists, they want to be troubled by this event. And I can tell you now, you can go search online, go on Google, go look it all up, and you'll find all kinds of theories out there. But what you will also find if you go research Joshua's long day, that in Egyptian history, in the writings of Herodias, in Babylonian history, and in Greek history, there is a record of a long day. There is a Chinese emperor from 1400 BC that writes of a long day. There are American Indian, South Sea Islanders, Aztec, and Inca records of a long night. The point is that something happened here. Now, obviously, for the sun, sun to stand still, what do we know now? What's moving? The sun or the earth, what's moving here? Well, for the sun to stand still, the earth had to slow down on its rotation. Now, I don't know how long it would take to slow the earth down so that there would, wouldn't be any massive destruction. You can't, the earth can't just slam on its brakes. All the waters, would, would, the oceans would empty out of their basins and whatnot. We, I don't know how long it would take. I've never done it before. But God has, and God knows. And that's the point, isn't it? But what is the Lord doing here? Why? Why this miraculous event? Why is God choosing to listen to the cries of a man and affect the cosmos and give him his response? There either will be or there has been a day in your life, in my life, in our life, when, when we are really willing and ready to deal with the heart issues. 
when we are willing, really willing, to dethrone any self-righteousness and let the Lord be the Lord of all of our lives. And if we are really willing to do that, we are willing to make any uphill march that's necessary. If we are really willing to come to terms with things in our lives that need to change, we are willing to bring them out into the open, out onto the battlefield, and to deal with them. And guess what? The Lord will lengthen that day. The Lord will set that battlefield so the door does not close on that chapter until something happens, something genuine happens. He will join you in the battle. He will give you victory. Or guess what? He isn't who he says he is. If Jesus Christ is not the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, and if his gospel doesn't have enough power to transform our lives, we're all fooling ourselves. The truth is, we need to let go of all of our excuses and admit that there is sin, and that there is sin in our lives that we have left untended and allowed to exist. The issue here is sin, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, we too can have life-changing power. We can experience that power. Now, I'm not saying that every single thing happens overnight, but I am saying this. If you are willing to join the battle, if you are willing to do those uphill drills, those uphill marches, and if you are willing to ask the Lord to change your situation, he will lengthen the day of battle, he will join the battle, and he will defeat your enemy. He will. How do I know that? Because I just read it. He will supernaturally impact your natural world and will make sure the victory is his. And you know what? Just like here, there will be no day like it before and there'll be no day like that after when he will come and fight for you. But you got to make that march. You got to put your heart out in the open and you got to allow him to defeat your enemy. Verse 15. Then Joshua with all Israel returned to the camp at Gilgal. Fifth time, last time it's mentioned. Joshua then returned with the army back to the back to Gilgal, back to back to the encampment. What was that walk like going home? What would it have been like as they are walking back to walk past the walls of Jericho as the Lord had brought them down? What would it have been like seeing this, the, the pile of stones as a remembrance of the Lord stopping the waters of the Jordan for them to cross? What would it have been like seeing the mound of stones where they buried the king of Ai where the Lord brought victory from their defeat? What was it like coming back to Gilgal, coming back to that place of consecration, coming back to the place where they have to cut away the flesh, remove themselves and allow the Lord to lead, to guide, to direct. The place of memorial, thinking about, looking back at all that the Lord has done with a hopeful expectation and anticipation of what he's going to do. There are times that we need to look at the memorials of the, the, the fallen sin of our life and go, wow, look at that stronghold he brought down. Look at that king he destroyed. Look at that river that he had me cross over and remember what he has done 
so that we can be encouraged and strengthened in our faith that he will again fight for us. He will join the battle. He will lengthen the day and he'll put to death all these things, not letting any of it escape so that we don't have to battle it, battle it again tomorrow. An amazing story here. So many pictures, so many types. An amazing natural phenomenon that I don't think there's something or anything like it in the scripture. Yeah, there's other miracles. What I think is absolutely awesome about this is that this is the final miracle in the book of Joshua. Sorry, there's no more miracles going forward. This is it. But what a way to end the miraculous. God has set the stage. He's allowed them to defeat the heartland. The heart has been defeated. Now it's just claiming the rest. Now it's just walking in victory after the defeat of the heart. Now they can walk and live in victory. Let's pray.